Lovely. So welcome to another Coffee and Heroes podcast. It's time now for another creator interview. So uh, your host is always Alan, owner and operator of Coffee and Heroes. Delighted to be joined by Keith as always. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. I know it's a it's a it's a fine Friday evening here in uh, in, in in Northern Ireland, and uh, I'm looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, it's nice. We're about to chat with a creator we're we're big big fans of who also lives in the UK as well. So we're we're not keeping them up too late or making them get up early to chat to us. So. As anyone who comes to the store knows, at Coffee and Heroes, we're massive advocates of following creators rather than characters. Enjoy a book by a certain writer? Here's something else they worked on. Oh, and here's a pre-order for their next title. And in the last couple of years, our guest today has become a shining example of this policy. Having worked across a variety of genres, horror, fantasy, heist, superhero amongst others, different publishers and on creator-owned and established characters, one thing has remained consistent, the quality of this creator's work. Last year, in our opinion, he was responsible for one of the definitive original graphic novels of the year, something we're very much looking forward to chatting about, as well as beginning a new chapter following in the footsteps of alumni such as Alan Moore, Brian K. Vaughan, Scott Snyder, Len Wein and others on one of DC's most highly regarded titles and characters. All of this, and he's not bad with a pencil and an art pad either. Our guest today is none other than Ram V. How are you in this fine afternoon? Yeah, I'm good. Uh lockdown is in london has uh, recently lifted so i had a chance to go out and grab myself uh, an india pale ale before i sat down for this uh, <laughs> sat down for this podcast so i'm uh, doing okay you are making us jealous ram already because uh in that in that way you're further ahead lockdown ways than we are yeah, so yeah. we haven't had that chance so uh i think we're going to be expecting hate meal already well well i i I had a drink in memory of all those who have not had a drink yet. Very, very decent of you. And speaking of, you know, lockdown, the dreaded, the dreaded words. I mean, obviously, hopefully things are, are sort of coming to, to an end. I, I got my first vaccine there uh, just the other day. But how have you, how have you coped and, and adapted to, to lockdown and, and restrictions, work and, and life in general, Ram? I was, I was talking about this with a friend just yesterday and I said, I think my my way of coping with the lockdown has just been well. I'm at my desk and sat in front of a screen anyway. I might as well take on more work. Uh, and so yeah, I think I think the past few months have been pretty crazy in terms of just the volume of work up that I've been doing. Um, but it seems also to me to be a good time to kind of take stock of like, okay, should I really be doing this much? Do I really do I want to have a life outside of my desk? So. Um, yeah, I mean, to be to be honest, that's how I've coped. I've kind of coped by drowning myself in work most of the time. The the schedules that I set for myself have have all gone to dissipated into blurred. I call it jelly time, where where you can't quite get a get a get a grip on like how many hours have gone by or what day it is or what part of the week you're in. Um, so if, if things are like that, I might as well, you know get work done so so that's what i've been doing yeah are you are you a bit of a workaholic by nature uh not really i'm i'm very obsessive by nature so if i find a thing that i'm interested in like 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 i will i will pursue it to the detriment of of other things um i discovered this about myself actually learning to play the guitar um my parents were kind of big music aficionados um when I was younger and they enrolled me in just about every music class they could think of. Like I learned 
to sing. I learned to play tabla in India. I learned to play Indian classical music. None of that. I was always like, I hate all of this. I don't really enjoy it, but I was, I was okay at it. And then I discovered the guitar when I was like 14. Uh, and then I think the next four years are just, my parents couldn't wait to like get me out of the house because they were like, it's 5 a.m. He's still playing upstairs. <laughs> that's, uh, that's something I'm very jealous to hear you say. I, uh, I mentioned just before the podcast that I work in music, uh, yeah. but I am a talentless hack. I have a, a guitar that, that a friend bought me many years ago. It sits beside the sofa and I don't think I've picked it up all locked down. I just, I find it very difficult to, I'd love to express myself that way, but I find it very difficult to to sit down and, and, and learn how. Uh, so I'm very jealous of your, your, your multi-talents there. I mean, that's probably more credit to my parents in that at least they inculcated in me that ability to just sit down and learn stuff. Uh, and I think that's important uh, to pick up, even if you're not particularly learning something. Because learning stuff is always more tedious than than actually being good at something. Once you're good, you're like, Oh yeah, this is cool. Um, but when you're learning, you know, it can be a little bit tedious every now and then. But I have a nice black and gold uh, Les Paul sitting downstairs, which I recently got. And yeah, I love. Uh, I used to play you know, blues venues when I was in Philadelphia, and I played with a few bands back then as well. So, uh, so you're a blues guy. Yeah, 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 very much so. That'll come up later. <laughs> So you mentioned that the last year has obviously been, you know, lockdown and so forth, and you've taken on loads of projects. Would you say you changed your creative process during this year? Would you have spent longer on a script, for example, and done more revisions on a script because you had more time? Or did you see it as a case of you're happy with your process? I'll just take on more projects in this time. I mean, I don't think it was a, as conscious a decision, to be honest. Uh, like I said, I tend to be very obsessive and, and enthusiastic about things that I that I'm interested in um, and so I think it was just a matter of figuring out that okay you can be enthusiastic about stuff but there's only so much work you can do in in a given amount of time so I think it was a case of 20 late 2018 early 2019 um, I think publishers had kind of begun to take note of the kind of work that I was doing uh, and so all of a sudden, kind of mid-2019-ish, everything I had pitched, people were like, yes, let's do it. And and so that part of me that was just like, okay, well, everything I pitch, people want to do, great. I'm going to, I'm going to do it all. I'm going to say yes. Um, and then 2020 comes around and I'm just like, oh, I'm so tired. <laughs> so um, I think, I think that's, that's a matter of, you know, not having done this for, for very long. Like I, like I self-published my first book in 2016. So um, I, I'd like to think I'm good at being professional about how the work is done and, and how I deliver the work. But also part of being professional is, I guess, kind of figuring out how much you can do um, versus how much you should do and versus how much you shouldn't do. Um, and I think there's a balance to be struck there. So to, to, to answer your question in terms of process, I don't think I've changed my process, but I think I'm beginning to recognize that there are parts of my process which I hadn't considered things to be part of my process, which are now becoming part of my process, which I need to pay attention to, which is, you know, back when I started in, in 2018, it was never a concern of whether I got time to get up in the morning and read for like three hours because I didn't have that much work. Now 
those losing those three hours is an actual consideration uh, and it's not one I should be making as, as a creator. So I guess 2021, I'm probably going to go back to, I mean, I've already started going back to editors and going like, okay, guys, I'm doing four things. I'd like to do two, but I'd like to do them well. Yeah. I mean, that's, I mean, from our point of view, Ram, we'd like you to, to, to look after yourself because we want you to be doing what you're doing for a good long time. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, and, and from my point of view as well, like, I, I want to do. I don't want to. I don't want to become one of those guys who's got like stuff out, uh, you know, every month, every week. But it's all just like, eh, if you've read one thing, you've read all the others. Kind of everything I do, I want it to be different. I want it to feel different. I want it to read different. So. I mean, with regard to you know to to getting outside your head and getting outside of work, you, you mentioned obviously you. You're a musician, uh, you know, and uh, how do you relax? Are there any Netflix favorites over lockdown or any of that sort of stuff? Anything, uh, you know, how do you, how do you, how do you chill out and, and, and switch off? Yeah, I mean, I, I tend to watch a lot of good TV. I tend to be very temperamental when it comes to watching TV. If I, if I start watching something and I, and I just get annoyed by how things have been executed by episode two, I'm like, oh, this is trash. Not going to watch it anymore. Uh, I won't even give it a chance. I know people who are like, oh, man, if you just get to episode four, it all gets better. I'm like, I don't care. They lost <laughs> episode two. Um, so I'm one of those guys. Um, I watched The Terror recently. Oh, wow. Uh, yes. Season one of The Terror. And that was very, very good. Uh, certainly, certainly the kind of show that I enjoy. So uh, I would definitely recommend that. Um, outside of that, I, I draw uh, and, and paint a lot. I got myself a iPad Pro, so I don't leave papers and paint sitting around the house everywhere now. Um, but yeah, I'm always trying to use sort of keep that as a hobby, if you will. Maybe maybe I don't know. Five years from now, you'll see me write and draw a comic, but it's I'm not pressuring myself into it. Um, and then yeah, and then music's always like an ever-present thing with me. I'm either listening to discovering new kinds of music or or playing trying to play stuff on the guitar. Like right now I'm obsessed with trying to play Marcus King. I don't know if you guys have heard him, but oh, it's amazing. Amazing yeah. guitarist, vocalist, everything. Yeah. I have uh, I have some uh, some up and coming Northern Irish bands that I'll recommend to you once we're finished recording. Great. Sure. Sounds good. So obviously with us chatting a lot about comics and so forth as well, I mean, growing up, were you more of a DC guy, more of a Marvel guy, more of an indie guy? Or was it just, you know, whatever you can get your hands on, I suppose? Well, I grew up in India and we didn't really have access to a lot of DC Marvel stuff. So um, growing up, my comics were Flash Gordon, Mandrake, The Phantom. Uh, so so I, I don't know what that sort of style of comic is or what that tradition of comics the, but the, the pulp comics i suppose of the 30s and 40s yeah, sort of stuff yeah, yeah. So, so those were the comics that were really available in india and so i read i read a lot of those um i used to collect the old lee fock phantom newspaper oh, strips that they were yeah. publishing in india at the time um and so those were really my gateway into comics then i moved on to more european stuff um asterix and, and ten ten um so, so books like that were, were what I read. The, the the DC Marvel stuff was a later edition as, you know, relatives would go to the States and they'd, they'd bring back these things called digests, mm -hmm. which 
which I fondly remember now, which would just have stories from like three different runs or three different collections. And I wouldn't quite be sure how it all fit together, but I didn't care. Um, so yeah, yeah. Uh, and then I think the, the animated stuff had more of an influence on me um, in terms of DC Marvel stuff. Um, just just watching the, the Batman animated series kind of blew my mind when I was a kid. Um, and I think it continues to to be a really almost a bigger influence on on my comic stuff than than a lot of the original comics. Yeah, like that's... there there are times I'll go back to editors and be like, yeah, I want to use this character. And the editors be like, you know, that's just a character from the animated series. Like it, it, that character is not in the comics. You know that, right? And I'm like, really? Okay, well, I still want to use that character. So yeah. I mean... Wouldn't be the first time that a character's made a jump from Batman the Animated Series to the comic books. Of course. You know, course. so we'd yeah. be very happy to, 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 to see that. Um, yeah, we were also and... very fortunate to have uh, an in-store signing with Clayman, and it was just before Batcat got announced, and he basically right, right. fought and fought and fought just to get Phantasm into the right. comics with Batcat. So it's just amazing how much that series just influences creators in general. It's, yeah, it's pretty it's timeless. It's also such a stylistic statement that series in terms of like if you if you you think about modern Gotham and modern Batman, it probably takes more influence from the animated series than it does from the original comics. Um, of course, you know Miller and, and Massa Kelly have have been massive influences on our kind of modern version of Batman, but that whole neo Gothic aesthetic that's all the that's all from the animated show. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really interesting hearing you talk about those those pulp characters, uh, you know, Mandrake the Magician, Flash Gordon, the yeah. fandom, because, I mean, I definitely have a weakness for that myself, and then, you know, lay, up alongside the shadow, but uh, it sort of cast my mind back to, to whenever I was a kid. Mm. Uh, it might be a wee bit before, before your time, but uh, there was an animated series called Defenders of the Earth, which oh yeah, brought, yeah, yeah. Which brought all of those characters together. Yeah, So yeah, there's some great. There's still some great stuff. I, I love exploring that. Uh, you know that 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 sort of stuff there. So, see, people don't realize this about India, but uh, Indian television content has always been about two decades behind the rest of the world, because um, it always the stuff that was running in the states found its way to India about. 10, 15 years after it had aired. So I grew up on everything that people 20 years older than me grew up on, which was which was an interesting sort of artifact to carry. Like my references were 80s TV shows, like Manimal. Like oh. that used to play in the afternoons in India when I was a kid. And people were like, what, this isn't this, isn't this like way before your time? I was like, probably, but I grew up watching it. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I remember that from days of yore. That's a blast from the past. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that show. I still, I still, I still have like, I want to do, I want to do stuff. I still, I still draw inspiration from a lot of those shows. Like, I recently pitched something that that referenced the old. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but there was a TV show called The Pretender. Yes. Uh, yeah, yeah. I referenced The Pretender and my editor was like, how old are you? <laughs> <laughs> Tell us a little bit about Vault Comics and their importance to your development, you know, as as they sort of popped up around the time you were making waves, you know, where 
we one of the, the or a few of the titles that we keep in store we have these things called store essentially store stalwarts will always keep in stock and two of those titles are something that maybe other stores don't carry as much of but we always keep these savage shores in stock and we always keep black stars above and and, and so we love that sort of literary nature so how was your time at, uh, at vault comics yeah i mean it was good um i heard of vault through uh, a friend that i had, had been introduced to by 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 another friend in India, uh, and she talked about these guys who were who were setting up a comic book company uh, and were going to do you know interesting things. Uh, so they were highly recommended. I was just starting to pitch creator owned ideas um, here and there, and I wanted to. I, I knew very early on that I didn't want to be a guy who published only with one publisher. Um, I wanted to kind of get out there and see what the experience was like with, with multiple publishers before I made up my mind. Uh, and so with Vault just starting out, I reached out. Um, Adrian said, anytime you want to pitch me something, you know, shoot it over. Adrian Wassel is one of the owners and the, and the founders and the editor there. Um, and so I think it was it was a year, year and a half later that I, that I pitched them the Savage Shores. Um, and... Yeah, they loved the idea. They picked it up. Um, and then it was only later I realized that everyone from the, the White Noise Studio Collective that we've got here in London, everyone had had a separate pitch in with them and they'd all been sort of accepted. And so so we all had those books come out around the same time. Um, yeah, and then my experience with them was was great. Um, I think they believed, really believed in the project, um, despite, you know, having someone try to pitch them a vampire story and... 20, 2018, 2017, which is always a, a dubious prospect considering the state of modern day vampires. But um, <laughs> yeah, but they, they, they believe in the project and, and I knew Sumit from my time uh, in India and I knew he was going to be tremendous. So, um, you know, a bunch of things came together to make this cool, cool book. Yeah, it's great to see vampires being used in that much more literary way, you know, the Bram Stoker type style. And we, we had mentioned before we came on here that we were, we were chatting with Jason Sean Alexander recently. And, and we also chatted to Rodney Barnes. And Philadelphia is another great example of that, making vampires yeah. actually scary again. And, and that right. was something I thought the Savage Shores was, was fantastic in doing. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. And I always have a problem with it's this need to turn everything into its prettier equivalent uh and i have a problem with that i, I don't buy into that aesthetic it's like i call it the gentrification of vampires <laughs> which is what it is if you think about it like come on they don't glitter in the sun like diamonds be quiet <laughs> referencing referencing no particular uh, no no particular picture <laughs> movies and then how has it been working with DC this year and, and indeed working with Mike Perkins on Swamp Thing, Fernando Blanco on Catwoman, you know, given the travel restrictions, is it just lots of Skype calls, lots of phone calls, you know, is is the process harder in the last year than it would normally be or is, as you say, has nothing much changed? I mean, it's harder in that I really enjoy, yeah, I go out to the States, I, or I had started to go out to the States maybe once or twice a year, New York Comic Con, San Diego. And I really enjoyed my time in San Diego because I would always take a day after and just head up to the DC offices and meet all the editors and go out for drinks and, and you know chat ideas and comics and all that. So I miss doing that. But equally, that means you know I can just 
DM one of them on a Tuesday morning and go like, hey, let's do a call this evening. Uh, and it's and it's gotten a lot easier to do it that way. Um, as for my time working at DC, I've just tremendously enjoyed it. Um, I've been I've been lucky in that I've been working with editors who are all very enthusiastic and excited to work with me. Um, I don't know I don't know if I've told this story or if you guys already know this story, but um, Jamie Rich was was the first editor from DC that I that I had any contact with. Who he had come down to Thought Bubble, and that was really my first kind of contact with anyone from from DC. Uh, and I gave him a copy of Black Mamba, which he then didn't read for a year. Um, <laughs> oh. And then a year later, I get like a random message from Jamie going like, "Hey, sorry, I slept on this." But Brittany Holzer, who's also an editor at DC now, she read the book and she was like, you should really read this. This is quite good. Uh, and so he reached out and he's like, let's do, let's do something in Vertigo, which to me at the time was uh, a, a massive, massive thing because I had gotten into comics off of the back, at least gotten into wanting to write comics off of um, reading kind of heyday Vertigo stuff. Um, and so to have the opportunity to go like my first thing at DC could be a Vertigo thing was going was gonna to be awesome. Um, and then while I was discussing that is when they shut down Vertigo. <laughs> no! And Jamie was like, yeah, sorry, I'm no longer at Vertigo. So it may not be, may not be a thing. Uh, and I was super disappointed. And then two weeks later, he emailed me going like, so I couldn't talk about this at the time, but I am now editing the Bat books at DC. Do you want to write a Batman story? Uh, and part of my mind was like, yeah, sure, okay, that's not a bad thing. I, I can, I can take, I can write a Batman story, sure. And so, yeah, that's kind of how my journey got started at DC. Um, and I met Brittany through working with Jamie, um, Jessica Chen, who's who's my editor on Catwoman. She's amazing. Uh, ben Mears is also on on the team. It's, they're all amazing to work with. And they're all super enthusiastic about comics. Um, and I think given the amount of work that I've done there, I've also kind of built up a sense of like, okay, we can trust Ram to know what he's doing with, with these stories. So once you're, once you're at that place, it's a really good relationship to, to work with. So that's a, that's a nice place to be. That's a nice place to be. And I mean, sticking, sticking on the DC stuff with regard to Justice League Dark specifically. Yeah. How did you feel, you know, with the change at DC from having the full monthly book to doing those and seeing ten-page backups uh, in the main Justice League title. I mean, was that was that frustrating, or does it give you a wee bit more freedom to go as as crazy as you like in the in the mystical side of the universe? Yeah, I mean, to be honest, when they came to me that they were like, "So, you know, do you want to continue doing this? What what, what do you want to do?" And I went back to thinking about those digests I got as a kid, and I was like. You know, those had 10-page stories. Those had 8-page stories that went alongside 22-page stories. So I went like, yeah, you know, I'm going to play with that format. And I suppose part of my instinct was to go, okay, I'll do these. But then you don't get to, you don't get to define as much how crazy I'm allowed to go with them. Uh, <laughs> and so they were like, okay, that's fine. That's a good deal to strike. Uh, Alex Carr was my editor at the time. He's no longer with DC now. But um, I remember having that conversation and he was going like, okay, the only rule is that you have to feature the team in every 
10 page story then everything else is up to you uh and i was like okay that's great bring it on <laughs> so yeah I've, I've genuinely enjoyed doing those 10 pagers um i don't know that i want to continue doing them for very much longer in that i've just got a lot of work mm. to be doing and and so it makes sense uh you know i've been doing justice league dark since james uh stepped off of that book so it might be it might be time to, to hand that to someone else but um i've i've got at least a year year and a half's worth of stuff written so yeah that's that's, that's great stuff i mean it's with, going with... to be crazy is all i can say about it <laughs> uh, looking looking forward to it because we're, we're enjoying it so far certainly and I mean, is yeah, it... I bet with like all the Merlin stuff, all of a sudden everyone on the UK side of things were like, yes, Merlin. <laughs> all the Americans are like, who? <laughs> all those Americans need to get on once in future. Uh, yeah, exactly. To, uh, yeah, absolutely. Read some Kirby. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, with that, with that deal, you know, uh, how, how, it can be very different managing a group of characters rather than focusing on on one i mean what's your what's your preference do you find that there there are some writers who, who can balance multiple characters others struggle a wee bit more how do you feel about it relative to to the focus say for example the more laser focus you have on swamp thing at the minute i mean i again i don't look at it in terms of teams versus versus single characters i look at it in terms of i do i do the same thing in both cases which is i start weaving in different motivations and, and different perspectives into the story. Like even with Swamp Thing, you know, there's someone spying on him. There's this villain in the desert. There is this relationship, which is kind of in between a friendship and, a, and something more. Uh, and all of those things kind of come together. And if you think about a, at least the way I like to, to deal with the team, which I think will be more apparent in these 10 pages than it was in the previous arc um, is when I started discussing this with my editors, they were like, okay, what is the purpose for Justice League Dark to continue? I'm like, do they need to have a purpose? What if, what if like a bunch of stuff happened where they all had their own vested interests in having to come together? Like what if people are coming together because of stuff that they're having to deal with rather than having some kind of mission statement where we're like, we are together because we deal with all of this stuff. Um, I always find that kind of organic, I need to be here. Sure, I'm part of this team, but I need to be here because of, you know, I've got issues or I've, I'm doing something on the side that nobody else knows about. <laughs> I, I find that kind of motivation to be much more interesting in terms of in terms of storytelling. So that kind of multiple threads weaving and pushing the story, uh, I like doing. Uh, in any case, and so it, it, it translates just as easily to to working with the team. It's uh, it's the battle that every every uh, dungeon master fights whenever they're starting a starting a campaign in Dungeons and Dragons. Why are these guys together? Why are these guys together? What's going on? Yeah, I always I always feel I always feel it's so much nicer when, like, yeah, sure, you could go like your mission is to kill this dragon, and therefore you guys have all been put together, or you can have that moment where you know you go like. Do you have my sword? And then somebody else comes in, and my axe. So <laughs> I, f I find that the, letting the fellowship form in in media res is much better than than kind of coming top down and going. This is why you guys are fighting the bad guys, you know. So just as a little uh, swerve to the side, you had mentioned before about uh, the Wise White Noise Studio. You know, how did that come about, and has it helped with your career? 
Yeah, I mean, undoubtedly, um, when I was starting out in comics, I knew absolutely no one in the industry. Um, and I was already, well, it was already 2014, 15, and I'd just moved to the UK. Uh, and my experience of comics was coming to a convention in the UK for the first time. And the only person I knew there was Ron Mars, because he had been to an Indian convention before. Uh, and I knew nobody else. So it was kind of important for me to find a group of people that I was kind of comfortable with. And and I think it's important to, to I think Alan Moore said it, the most important writers you'll meet are the people who are writing stuff around you, not the people who've written stuff before you, um, which I think is a very true statement and, and very interesting statement to make. Because, yeah, I mean, clearly I take inspiration from a lot of writers who've come before me, but they don't drive me to do interesting work. The, the writers that drive me to do interesting work are the writers who are working around me. Uh, and so having these guys in, in the White Noise studio is always a push, is always, what are you doing? Oh man, this was so cool. I need to do something better. I need to do something as interesting, if you will. Um, and yeah, I mean, even just in terms of brass tax storytelling, um, I'll have calls with Dan and Alex Packnadel and Ryan O'Sullivan pretty regularly and go like, hey, this is what I'm thinking. And then Alex will have some kind of weird outlandish idea or Dan will have a take on a character that will just fit. Uh, it's also like, I'm very lucky to find people who are generous with their ideas. You know, it's easy to go like, oh, that's what you're doing. I have this cool thing in my head, but I will not tell it to you because then you will use it. Uh, and there's none of that here. Um, like people will share ideas that that are clear that they clearly could have used themselves. Um, I think part of it is we all realize that it's not the idea, it's the execution that matters. And and so you'll always have more ideas. That, that, that's the core of it, isn't it? It's, it's what you yeah. do with what you do with that idea. Mumbai seems to appear in a lot of your books and the way you present the city in various ways in your stories is always it's always really striking. Uh, Black Mamba, Graffiti's Wall, and soon to be uh, the many deaths of Leela Star all feature the city. Is it is it important yeah. to you to tell these stories about a place that I mean, certainly on this side of the world we don't generally see in mainstream comics? It's that question, right? I've I've written about this before, where where people always say to write what you know, uh, and I don't quite necessarily agree with that in that. You shouldn't be questioning what you should write. That statement isn't intended to make you question whether you should write something, it's, whereas it's intended to make you question what is it to really know something. Um, and I feel like I know the city of Mumbai in a way that other people don't. I feel like I know an experience of growing up in Mumbai that is partly universal and partly very specific uh, to, to that city. Uh, and if you if you look at something like Rafi's Wall, that's certainly what I'm tapping into there. Um, what does it feel like to grow up in this city? Everyone can identify with being young and 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 having dreams and aspirations. Um, but what is it like doing that in a city where you're surrounded by 20, 30 million other people, where the face of the city is constantly changing because it's going through such rapid development? So. Yeah, it's important because it's where I come from and it will always be a part of me. And every city I travel to, I guess you you start kind of making connections between like, okay, this is how London is like Mumbai. 
this is how New York is like Mumbai, this is how Paris is like Mumbai. And so everything comes back to where I grew up. And, and for me, it's that city. And there are experiences of it that are so unique that they are immediately beautiful because they are unique. Uh, like, I don't know um, if you notice this, but there's a there's a panel in Graffiti's Wall where one of the characters um, kind of lights up a cigarette outside a, outside a local kind of street side cigarette shop. Um, and they, she doesn't use matches or, or a lighter. Um, it's a very specific thing. There's a filament, like a naked bulb filament tacked on, soldered onto the wall with an electric switch next to it. So you can turn on the switch and the filament lights up and gets really hot and you light up your cigarette on that filament. I have not seen that used anywhere else in the world <laughs> because it's terribly dangerous and you probably shouldn't, but... I've seen it used in India, and when Anand drew that, I was like, yes, that is so Mumbai, it is amazing. Yeah, it's stuff like that. I, I really enjoy I really enjoy stuff like that. I think cities have personalities of their own. Looking forward to getting you over to Belfast so you can compare how, you, how Belfast is relative to Mumbai. <laughs> yeah, I've heard of, like, but, but I, every, everywhere I go, I hear of these things. Uh, I haven't been to Belfast yet, so I'd love to, but I was... Uh, I was in Croatia. I was in I was in um, Dubrovnik, which was the which was the place where Game of Thrones was shot. Yes. And that city is so full of very specific but weird Game of Thrones stories, um, like the the scene where where Cersei's walking down through the streets where everyone's going shame shame as she walks down. That is all shot outside of Dubrovnik's like main college. Uh, and the college was so embarrassed at having that scene shot on their steps. And they were like, all college branding needs to be hidden when you shoot that scene. So it was just bizarre <laughs> stuff like that. And, yeah. I, and I love that about cities. So, yeah, I would yeah, love to discover weird stuff about Belfast one day. Brilliant. Brilliant. Dubrovnik is a gorgeous city. Gorgeous city. Yeah. yeah. And we've certainly many Game of Thrones landmarks over here for you to discover as well. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> If you don't mind, we're going to redirect to Blue and Green, of course, right here. Of course, this is an audio medium, so you can't see me holding up this book. First of all, excellent work. You know, it's genuinely one of the best things we have read in the last few years. I'm a big advocate of listening to music when I read. And for this, I put on uh, the Whiplash soundtrack. And it was just it was just perfect. But I, I, I'm really curious, was it always conceived as an original graphic novel or were there discussions about following this sort of traditional single issue graphic novel down the line model of release? Uh, to be honest, that wasn't a consideration when we originally pitched it. We hadn't thought about it. We, we sent in like five or six pages and it was uh, Eric Stevenson at Image who said, I think this will be more successful if you put it out as a graphic novel. Considering Anand and my previous experience working together had been on Graffiti's Wall, which came out as a graphic novel, we said, yeah, yeah, that's absolutely fine. Like, it makes complete sense to us. If you if you ask me now, I think Anand and I almost prefer working on that format because he tends to, tends to be a little bit more thoughtful with his process. He needs to take his time. Um, but, you know, you'll always get something exceptionally pretty from him. So... It wasn't. It wasn't a consideration until we got to the point where we were pitching it. Uh, you've already mentioned to us, uh, Ram, that you're a, you're a musician. You're interested in, in blues music. So uh, I mean, I guess that's where this the question about where your influences on on this book came from. I mean, are, do those feed in there? Is there anything else that uh... to an extent? 
even though I prefer playing blues music, I, I listen to absolutely everything from Tuvian throat singing to, to Danish death metal to I listen to absolutely everything. Uh, I love music. I love I, I listen to like hours of people just beatboxing as well. I just like I just like listening to sounds um, and they're interesting and making sounds is interesting to me. My my influence for Blue and Green probably came from my time uh, as a kid. My dad was quite into music as well and he had a 500, 600 strong collection of um, audio cassette tapes, um, which were very hard to get in India uh, at the time. He had to go, I remember walking with him to the railway station where we, we, stayed, we stayed in a suburb of Mumbai called Thane. Uh, I remember walking with him to the railway station there where there were shops which would essentially bootleg audio cassette tapes. Uh, and so these weren't original publications. And, and so we would buy these kind of bootleg cassette tapes. And my dad had everything from blues, pop, jazz, classical, you know, not only European or American music, but also like music from Africa, music from Spain, music from Egypt. I, I remember all of these places. Um, and I remember listening to them with him um, in the evenings where we would turn off the lights in the house and we just listen to this music. Uh, and I think a lot of my jazz influences come from that time. I remember listening to Art Blakey and the Messengers. I remember listening to, to Sonny Rollins. And and so, yeah, probably blues evolved out of that, but my my exposure to jazz music came a lot before I decided to, to pursue music with any seriousness. Beyond that, I, I just love jazz. I think the idea for Blue and Green actually came from a conversation I had with a musician in Seattle after I had walked out of uh, the, the ECCC Comic Con. I had just been like, I need some time off. I need some time to myself. I'm going to go find a quiet bar and sit down. And I found this place where there were maybe eight people sitting at the bar and there was a jazz band playing. And I was just like, oh, man, so such a such a lucky thing to be in such a small crowd listening to a band. So when they took a break, their bassist came up and, and sat down next to me and he was like, hey, how are you doing? I offered to buy him a drink um, and we started talking about music. And I said, jazz and good writing are trying to do the same things in a lot of ways in that they're both trying to create or evoke a feeling in their reader, which it is impossible to evoke outside of that sort of unknowable, nebulous nature of what you're putting together. Like, if I could tell you how Blue and Green felt without you reading the book, then the book has failed. Like, why does the book exist? It exists because when you read that book, you're left with something, hopefully, that is impossible for me to articulate outside of that book. And so I think jazz does the same thing in that it takes all these conventional notes, but it puts them together in such ways where you can't articulate whether a song is a happy song or is it a sad song or is it weirdly haunting in some ways. And I feel like there's that, always that commonality. And, and I think really it's that at that point that I started thinking about like wanting to do this story, which was literary in some ways, but also about the nebulous nature of music and, and the pursuit of excellence within it.
And the themes of untapped potential and the dangers of, you know, is, is potential the most dangerous thing in the world? And, you know, what right. do you have to sacrifice to sort of, you know, live up to that potential and so forth? It was just a, a ridiculously great book, grip, gripping from start to finish. I mean, how was the collaborative process on it? You know, the layouts and overall artwork for me are on another level, you know, between Anand Arke's art, John Pearson's colors, Aditya Bidikar's letters. You know, it all works in perfect symphony, if you'll excuse the terrible music pun. <laughs> How much input do you have on the finished page? Or are you more of a writer where it's a case of, look, I'm the writer. I trust these guys to do their work and I'll have a look at the final product. Or are you more hands-on than that, looking at every single page? I'm, I'm super hands-on, but it's not a question of trust. It's not like I don't trust these guys and that's why I'm hands-on. No, it's a question of I think about making comics like I think about making music where if you're if you're part of a band there's no band where the vocalist just records his track and then sends it over and go like okay you guys do the rest it has to be a, a back and forth it has to be a i don't know can you can you turn down the bass here can you like come in with a solo you know at this half beat there's there's always that sense of collaboration and frankly i'm surprised like more people don't do it that way in comics because it's not just a matter of you know, me doing that on creator own stuff, like Mike and I work like that now, where I'll write something and Mike will go like, ah, I think we should change it this way. Like he just, he's just finished a spread, which is nothing like what I put into the script, but we went back and forth over it to arrive at what it finally looks like. Um, and that, and that title spread in, in issue two of Swamp Thing is something like I sketched out on a piece of paper and sent it to him. Uh, and so there's, I don't see any point in, in drawing these kind of boundaries between like, this is my job and this is your job. Um, no, our job is to make a cool thing. That's the only job that matters. That has always been my approach, probably more so with my creator own stuff. Um, with Anand, the, the process of writing the story was interesting. I first started out writing it like I would any other script. So, you know, 10, 12 pages of script, sent it to him. And then by the time we got those 10 pages done, we realized that we were doing so much back and forth that it didn't make sense for me to write the next four pages until like this one was finished. And so I started writing the whole story like a page at a time where I would write the page, send it to him. We would discuss the layouts. He would draw the page. I'd get it back and go like, okay, next page, this is what happens. And so it almost became a very jazz like call and response. We're both yeah. improvising as we go on kind of thing. Um, and I think I think it sh it shows through in the story that the, the fact that it all feels like it's a little bit malleable that it could go anywhere, you know. Feels like feels like jazz. I think that's yeah. A really yeah. I think that's a really good, uh, a really excellent way to put it. And and I'll, I'll I love hearing that that that's that's the way you were that that's that's the magic, you know. That's, yeah. Uh, fantastic. Um, you seem you seem to be full of ideas, Rama. Have you? I mean, I know the answer to this is going to be yes, but any any plans for any future original graphic novels? Yes, I don't intend to to stop <laughs> anytime soon. Currently, my my plate is pretty full with stuff that I've already got coming out. Like I've got many deaths of Layla Star coming out. I've got Radio Apocalypse planned with Vault for for later in the year. Dan Waters uh, and I are collaborating with two very cool artists. Um, who, who we have not yet named, but on on a collaborative project, uh, which we'll, we'll be taking to Image potentially. And it's going to be 
it's going to push the boundaries of what we think the comics medium can be or how the comics format works uh, in a lot of interesting ways. And I don't say that lightly. Uh, we, we brought an editor on board for the book who's been working in comics for, for decades now. And this editor said in my, I think he said in my 24 years of making comics, no one has ever pitched this kind of an idea to me. But now that you've brought it here, I'm like, yeah, I see no reason why it can't work. So wow, yeah, interesting. Yeah. So we're pretty pretty excited about putting that out. So yeah, so I'm not thinking beyond that at this point. Uh, I've also got some potential sort of TV film work happening as well. So part of me is also trying to rein in my brain from getting ahead of itself. So. Well, that's one of the things that, you know, I, I think you guys achieved with Blue and Green already, that it's something different. You know, we we've we very much focus on our store. We push indie comics so much. Well, even calling Image an indie company these days is something of a misnomer because, you know, they're so huge. But we're very much of the opinion there's a comic for everyone. You know, there's there's yeah. always this perception that comics are just superheroes punching each other in the face. It's kitty books. It's this and that. But there's so much great literary works in there. You know, you just yeah. have to hand them Sandman alone, you know, just to show, look, look at what comics can be. And and we feel that very much with Blue and Green, that it's very much adult storytelling. It's, yeah. it's it's a complete story. It's not a here, read issue one and come back in a month and we'll give you the next. So yeah. we, we found with sales of Blue and Green in our store, it's went to a lot of first time readers, which is, is really, really encouraging as well. I was just going to ask actually as well, you know, with, with the strength of this book, Obviously, it's the same team reuniting on Radio Apocalypse. Uh, what can you tell us yeah. about that? Yeah, it's another music-centric comic as well, uh, as you can tell from the name. Um, but the idea has actually been sitting around a lot longer than Blue and Green or Graffiti's Wall. Uh, it's actually the first book that Anand and I talked about collaborating on. And to put it very simply, the idea is that the, the world uh, has, has ended or is near ending. This is kind of telling the story of the last functioning radio station on the planet. Uh, so we're looking at the lives of the people whose whose narratives center around keeping this thing working, uh, even though you know it's broadcasting Bruce Springsteen into the unknown. <laughs> um, but but I think it says something. I guess the 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 more interesting aspect of it is like why is music important even when even when you know, people are struggling for for food or water or resources. Why is why are we so obsessed with the need for art, even in times where functional things are not available? And you can see it reflected throughout history. Uh, frankly, you know, pandemic hit. What did, what did yeah. people do? The first thing people did was like they walked out onto their balconies and started singing the opera. Why? Um, <laughs> You know, Sarajevo happened, and there were cellists in the streets playing playing music for for everyone else. Uh, and so, I think there is something immensely powerful about music, uh, and it ties into music and art. It ties into human ideas about hope and 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 persevering through difficult times. So here, yeah. that's what the book is about. Shifting focus a wee bit, just to to Swamp Thing, Levi, who is the is the new lead of uh, of Swamp Thing. He appears to be, in some ways, the ultimate outsider. He's not at home where he's at in the U.S. He's uncomfortable, and it appears he'll always be the one who who left whenever he does return home. And, you know, he's not even really at home in his own skin in a, in a lot of ways, and in a lot of very sure. significant ways. 
Can you tell us a wee bit more about where that comes from and if you can, maybe where it's going? I feel like that outsider's perspective is such a powerful perspective to have as a writer and, and to be able to put readers into that state of mind, which is this is not the Swamp Thing you're familiar with. This is not where you've spent, you know, 10, 12 years of your life. You don't know how things are going to turn out. I think it was important to kind of establish that with, with the first couple of issues is, no, everything you thought you knew is not not the same here. And for for new fans, I think for, for people who are certainly from my generation and the generation beyond, this sense of like, I am a nowhere person because I am from everywhere. Uh, and I don't mean that as a, as a, as a derogative comment to say that, that you're a nowhere person. I mean that as you're from everywhere, you're, you're a human being, and that's more important to you than saying I'm from India or I'm from America or I'm from Europe. Uh, and I think that sentiment makes Levi a, a person of, of this time uh, and representative of, of people of this generation, if you will. Uh, and that was important for me because part of my motivation behind you know, making such a big change, which is to go like, okay, it's not Alec Holland anymore, it's Levi Kamei, was to go, yeah, well, Alec Holland was a, a person of his time uh, and reflected the concerns of his time. You know, there's narratives about nuclear power, there's narratives about um, defining who you are, where you're from, are you human, are you not? And so I think a successful Swamp Thing book should do the same when it's published in 2021. It should talk about concerns of its time. And, and I think Levi, uh, and making Levi a character like that, who's not quite sure where he's from, if you will, was important Was important to doing that. It's interesting with Swamp Thing, because I, I listened, as I was telling you earlier, to a few of your other podcasts, and you're, not, you're someone who doesn't like the constraints of genre. And we feel that, I think, very much in Swamp Thing, because Swamp Thing is, it, certainly with issue two, it seems to be part Western, part Noir, part horror you know part fantasy but it all and still fits with, but it all still fits in within the dc universe you know you, you've you've thrown in batman at the end there bruce wayne watching on you've you know you've you've thrown links to alec holland as you say towards the end i mean the imagery in in issue two was just phenomenal the the giant tree mushroom cloud you know yeah. and you know i i find that really really interesting because so many people like to be pigeonholed within genres and it's something you don't seem to believe in very much. You you just go where the story takes you. Well, that's that's my brand. My brand is Ram writes across genres and can't be pigeonholed. <laughs> uh, so I'm just I'm just picking a different brand. That's all. I like or I, I like to believe that good stories work regardless of genre. Um, frankly, uh, having discussed this with a bunch of really good writers who I met as part of my novel writing course that I did when I came here is uh, the, the genres were invented by marketing teams, not by creators. You know, Ray Bradbury didn't go, I want to write sci-fi, and therefore I shall write this. Kurt Vonnegut didn't go, I am a sci-fi writer who towards the later end of his career would like to be known as literary. It was, it was teams who said, okay, how do we help comic book stores or, or bookshops put these books in shelves in the right, right spots? Um, and so something that was invented as an aid to help put books together kind of fed back into the creative community and suddenly went, oh yeah, he's a sci-fi writer. Or, and that's why Margaret Atwood won't confess to being a, a sci-fi writer 
uh, and keeps saying that she's a literary writer. Well, she writes she writes sci-fi just fine. And and so I think as a creator, it, it behooves us not to be as concerned with the constraints of genre and focus more on why do stories work. If you know, if you understand why stories work, they can work everywhere. They can work when you're writing a great sprawling fantasy or they can work when you're writing like a really toned down romance novel as well. So that's what I like to do. Once you've kind of figured that out, once you've kind of understood why Swamp Thing is great and why stories work, you'll find that, you know, issue three and four probably lean in more into fantasy. Issue five is probably more political than people would think it is. Or issue six, seven, eight are more straight up superhero action than than people expect. So I think by the time we're done at least with this season one, we will have set that expectation that no, you have no idea where this is going. Yeah, my favorite word you words you just used there was season one. I know a lot of people have this question about like, oh, is it a mini series? We didn't pitch it as a mini series. We pitched it as continuing seasons. We pitched it as we're gonna do ten issues. And at the end of 10 issues, I want to ask the question of everyone. Are you guys happy with how this is going? Creative team is happy. Publisher is happy. Let's do another season. It's how it works in a lot of other places. I don't see why it shouldn't work that way in comics. You know, I don't want to ask for something that I haven't earned. But equally, I don't want to be, I don't want to be denied something that, that the book deserves, clearly. So... So Swamp Thing has always been a, a book with an environmental awareness and, and all signs point to your holding that. Was that a, a consideration for you in taking on Swamp Thing? I, mean, I feel like it has to be in a lot of ways. And, and I feel like there's a long tradition of stories that are environmentally aware, even if those concerns have become more heightened now. Like Lord of the Rings is an environmentally aware book. You know, it talks about the reason it presents... The, the iron and fire of Saruman as a negative as compared to the greenery of the Shire. Um, you know, there are there are other considerations and perhaps other political takes, I'm sure. I think it's an environmentally aware book. And I think any anytime you start talking about the swamp thing and an avatar of the green and the point of view, really, if you think about it on a fundamental level, all swamp thing stories are about the world judging us. Like... We've we've spent time on this planet. If the planet could, what would it think of us? I think that is the fundamental question at the heart of a lot of Swamp Thing stories, and 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 that inherently is an environmental question. I don't see how it can't connect to the environment. And so, releasing next week is your latest project, issue one of the many deaths of Leila Star, collaboration with artist uh, Philip Andrade, and re released through Boom Studios. Mm -hmm. How did that creative team come together and what can we expect from that title? The previews look fantastic. Yeah, thank you. I think that book came about from my conversations with Eric Harburn, who's the editor at Boom. And he said, hey, I want you to do something India-centric, Graffiti's Wall, something of that note, but we want it to be a bit more sort of Put some put some fantasy elements with it. Put some sci-fi elements with it. And there's always been this long tradition of doing like mythological characters in Indian stories. People love doing the Ramayana. I'm sure there's about ten comics that have done the Ramayana at this point. And so I wanted to do something with Indian gods, but I wanted to do something that was 
humorous and irreverent and and like human, Indian gods are hilarious. There are so many stories that everyone seems to want to tell like the big guy, oh, he's powerful and he saved all of us kind of stories. Like there's a, I'm going to go on a tangent here, but I love telling the story. <laughs> there's an Indian god, god called Shiva and uh, who's the father of the famous Indian god Ganesha, who's the kid with the elephant's head. And, and no one knows the story of how he got his elephant head, which is Shiva and Vishnu, who's another god, were, were at home discussing important godly things when Ganesh came in and wouldn't stop pestering them. And so Shiva, who is notorious for his great temper, picked up uh, Vishnu's instrument of, or weapon of war and threw it at his kid and ended up beheading his own son. And then this is this is the funniest thing. And then his reaction was not that he has beheaded his son. His reaction was, oh, no, my wife's going to be home at any point now and she will <laughs> kill me if she finds out I've done this. And so he asks Vishnu to, to find him a solution. They travel down to Earth and they pick up the first thing they can find, which is an elephant. And so Shiva just goes, I'm going to take your head and put it on my son. And so I've got this like mental image of the wife coming home and she's going like, is there something different about our son? What did, what did you do? So I feel like I feel like that tone has been missing from Indian mythology or mythological stories. And I kind of wanted to bring that in. And that's the and idea of the, 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 the corporate nature of, of, of the, the pantheon. Yeah, it's just, yeah. it's just, they're silly and they're bureaucratic and they worry about weird things when it comes to like godly, godly. It's like, who worries about, oh no, what is she going to say when she gets home? Like, that's such a human thing. <laughs> and so I kind of wanted to bring that in a little bit. Um, and I also wanted to talk about death, which is kind of the, the subject of focus for the many deaths of Layla Star. I questioned if this was a smart thing to do, considering, you know, you say death and you say comics and everyone thinks about Neil Gaiman's take on, on death. But that's also such a culturally unique thing. Like what death means to someone from from Europe or, or, or someone who's been raised as a Christian means very different things to someone who's been raised as a Hindu, to someone who uh, is from a different country, a different culture. Uh, and so... I wanted to touch on that, and I don't think the subject of how Hinduism and India as a country deals with death and looks at death and perceives how the society perceives death. I don't think they've been done in stories before, and I felt like that was something we could we could use and deal with uh, here. And how did Philippe Andrade come on to the project? Is that someone yeah, so, that you're so a fan of? Eric, well, no, I hadn't seen Philippe's work. Eric and I were talking about artists, and Eric said, you know, you have a really good eye, and, a, and I'm sure you have a, an idea of how we want this to look. Uh, so let's start looking at artists. And much to his disappointment, I said, I don't know how I want this to look. I know how I want this to not look. So when we were going through artists, I was like, hmm, not quite that gritty. Hmm, that feels too superhero -y. So we were going through a list of artists, and I saw Philippe's work. And I think Eric had linked like four or five of his Instagram posts. As soon as I saw them, I was like, this is it. This is the guy. We should get him. And Eric reached out to Philippe. And, and thankfully, Philippe was, his schedule worked out and he was available. I think he brings such an electric energy to everything he draws. It just feels constantly in motion, in movement. And I think that helps with the kind of 
little bit whimsical, a little bit humorous tone of the story as well. So I'm quite, I'm quite thrilled with what he's done. His colors are beautiful. And uh, while I didn't notice at the time, uh, Philippe had been to, to India before. And so he, it didn't take a lot for him to go like, okay, I remember what this should feel like. And I think what it should feel like is more important than what it should look like. You're clearly doing something right because you're already gone back to a second print in this. That must be very satisfying. Yeah, yeah, it was uh, it was quite the thrill. I mean, I sent the sent the book out to a bunch of creators, and they were all very kind uh, in in shouting out about the book, promoting it, and I think we sent out early copies to 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 stores as well. The stores were happy to promote it. I, I heard back from a few retailers as well, like, oh, I read this, it was really cool. We don't have anything like this in the store at the moment. And I think that's the most satisfying thing for me to hear, even when you go like, there's nothing like blue and green. My endeavor is always to do something that that feels like, okay, there's nothing else like this. If I wanna go for something like this, I need to get this book. And so part of the reason I think people talked about it was for that, and I'm so glad that that's been the case. Uh, obviously, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit more of a known quantity now as well, uh, considering I worked for four or five years. So I feel like people are more willing to take that leap of faith as well. Like somebody reached out to me and said, like, this is going to be my first non-superhero comic that I read. And that is such a joyful thing for me. I remember when I was just starting out, like following Neil Gaiman's Twitter account and somebody had tweeted at him saying that Sandman is the first comic I ever read and I love it and it brought me into comics. Like I want to do that. I want to have people read my books and have it be the first thing they've read that is either in comics or non-superhero comics or superhero, whatever you want to call it. But if it brings more readers in and if it enthuses more people about this medium, then uh, I will have succeeded in some small way. Well, I think you're definitely at the right publisher for that because we've been big proponents of Boom Studios in the last few years, whether it's Once in Future with Fantasy or Something is Killing the Children with Horror or The Last yeah. Witch with Celtic Mythology or, you know, so Boom Studios is is a big success, certainly in our store. You know, we, we do promote their work as much as, as much as humanly possible, really. Yeah, and... and... I want to shout out to to Eric Harburn at Boom as well. Part of the part of the reason I I went to you know discuss this with Boom and publish with them was to work with him. Uh, I think he's a fantastic editor uh, and really has an eye for like, you know, sometimes you get feedback from editors and you're like, okay, my story functions well, but this is all logistical stuff. And then there are certain editors that you'll get feedback from where you go, this person understands stories and why it works. And Eric's definitely one of those people who understands why stories work. Yeah, even from a retailer point of view, Boom Studios are, are excellent. You know, you get thank you variants sent out and little extra incentives and things like that. And incentive variants in general in the industry can be a dangerous thing to chase for right. uh, for comic stores. But they just send out sort of surprise variants. And I'm not yeah, too ashamed to say... I don't say... know how retailers do it, to be honest. I'd go nuts if I had to, like keep clear understanding of what you're ordering, how much you're ordering and how many variants there are. I it's tricky. It's tricky. <laughs> know, know your audience is the, is the main thing, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll start to, to wrap up now. We'll, uh, you've been of course, very, very generous with your time. Just a couple of questions, just about upcoming work. And then we have a couple of questions from customers, if that's okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely fine. 
Cool. So uh, are there are there any creators out there whose work you're particularly enjoying the moment? Kieran Gillen's Once in Future certainly uh, is, is something I've kept up with. His internal stuff is also great, but Once in Future is like pretty cool, pretty cool. Hey, Kieran Gillen seems to be, you know, obsessed with the idea of the story mm. and a story yeah. and writing stories about the story, the meta stuff. Right. It's, it's really fantastic stuff. Really fantastic yeah, stuff. Yeah, it is. And, and you can see that through line through through all of his work really yeah, yeah. Uh, probably more so in Peter Cannon than than a lot of the other stuff but yeah and then I've always enjoyed work from uh, Pornsack Pichichot who's doing uh, the Good Asian now and he did Infidel before with Image and so that's something I'm I'm quite looking forward to mm-hmm. Michael Walsh Silver Coin from Image uh, which issue came out from with Chip Starsky uh, mm-hmm. writing I believe. Um, that's going to be a really interesting series as well. Yeah. Department of Truth, James Tynan. This Martin is music Simmons. to our ears. This is music to our are, ears. Are you sure you don't listen to our weekly reviews podcast? At all? <laughs> you know, we, we, we just showcased the Silver Coin number one this week. Yeah, excellent, excellent issue. So it was. Well, gentlemen, you have good taste. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice of you to say. Is there is there anyone else out there? I mean, because you, you've you're working with with a fantastic group of collaborators you know and your various projects is there anyone else out there who you'd really love to you'd really love to collaborate with yes but i'm also in a position where i have genuinely reached out to them so i don't want to like publicly say that and, and put them <laughs> on the spot so let me put it this way i am already collaborating with people whose books i read and they brought me into comics so so that is a that is a thrill I'll say I'll say I will tell you who I worked with that was like an absolute dream to work with. Like working with John Paul Leon was phenomenal. Wow. Uh, I think Winterman was was one of those books that I read early on um, that really pulled me into comics as well. So working with him was great. And we'll keep the surprise for for people who are about to see upcoming work drop. So fantastic. So we just have a couple of questions that some of the the coffee and heroes uh, regulars, some of the you know that had asked us if they could if we, we could we could ask you. So Josh asks, how do you come up with so many inventive heists for Catwoman? Is there perhaps a career as a master thief in your future? I mean, I could be one, but I choose to be a writer because I'm not brave enough to do all the things that I write about. This is true. <laughs> this is true of all the, all writers except maybe Hemingway. I come up with the heists because I like watching a lot of heist movies. I've seen my fair share of like classic heist stuff like The Sting, uh, or I've seen my share of more more contemporary heist stuff, the the Oceans movies with Soderbergh or, or Michael Mann and Heat. So these oh. are all influences um, I bring to Catwoman, and and sort of creating these heists is a is a is a is a welcome distraction from from like writing the actual script because you know you're writing and you're like oh man the writing is is kind of tired okay i'm gonna go s- sit at my desk and figure out how to get a bunch of people into a building that's locked from all from all sides you know it's stuff like that uh, and it's great to do so yeah the playful heist in catwoman always put me in mind of to catch a thief you know classic hitchcock right. so uh, yeah uh, I don't think I can ha- give any bigger compliment than that. So Tim asks, you share a lot of doodles on social media and frequently use them as a warm-up for writing. Any plans at some point in the future to focus on drawing a title as opposed to just writing? Yeah, I always I always get this comment. But I also think that it's important for me to keep 
my drawing as a hobby because it doesn't carry with any of the pressures. Like I can draw a crappy sketch and it doesn't matter. Whereas if I write a crappy script and that's all the time I've had to write that script, then, then it's a problem. So yeah, you kind of use drawing as a no pressure outlet for me, which is great. So when I get to a point in my writing career where I feel like I can disappear for two years and, and come back with confidence that, that people will look for what I'm writing, maybe that's the time to go like, okay, I've got two years. I can, I can draw the same page six times before I get it right. Um, so yeah, so that might, that might be a good time to, to try and do something of that sort. Great stuff. And lastly, from Vicky, who is uh, Alan's better half and the co-owner of the Coffee and Heroes, uh, your work on Justice League Dark and Catwoman is ongoing. Swamp Thing, currently 10 issues. Many Deaths of Leela Star, 5 issues. Blue and Green was a, an original graphic novel. Do you have a preferred length that a story should be? I don't, I don't have a preferred length, but I have an understand or I have a vague rule of thumb with lengths of stories. Like if you're writing prose flash fiction, then that's the length of about 10 or 12 or 13 pages in a comic, I would imagine. If you're writing a really short, short story, that's one issue. If you're writing a eight to 10,000 word long short story, that's maybe four or five issues. If you're writing a novella, that's maybe eight issues. If you're writing a novel, I imagine that would be 10, 12, 13 issues. And if you're going beyond that, if you're if you're the next R.R. Martin, then you're probably going to be writing an ongoing. So that's how I tend to think of tend to think of my comics. I get told I'm a very dense writer, although I don't think that's true. I might be a dense storyteller, but I'm not a dense writer. My my comics issues tend to have a lot of story packed into them, but not not as many, not nearly as many words as a lot of other writers who I've loved and enjoyed before as well. So, yeah, I think density and structure is is something that that I do look into quite a bit. So, yeah. And then finally, we just always like to finish our interviews by asking a creator: Do you have a favorite DC title slash series of all time? A favorite Marvel title slash series of all time? And a favorite indie title slash series of all time? I don't know if this quite qualifies as DC or, or, or Vertigo, but but I think Sandman would be my favorite DC slash Vertigo title of all time. If you if you confined it purely to DC, then I'd probably say Kingdom Come uh, would be would be a favorite. On the Marvel side of things, uh, my my Marvel reading is fairly limited, but Daredevil is probably uh, a good go to the, the Miller Miller reinvention, if you will, uh, Klaus Janssen, Frank Miller. And then on a related note, the, the Elektra Assassin with Sienkiewicz is also one of those kind of all-time things. And I'm, I'm basing these off of not necessarily like there's nothing better than this, but just the stuff that I keep going back to when I'm like running dry on inspiration and I go back and I pick up a book. And I will add to that... Game and Eternals as as a thing that uh, I don't know maybe it's the Game and fan in me but it's it's one of those stories that I felt like it was both I think it's the most simultaneously Neil Gaiman and Marvel thing that I've read whereas you know 1604 certainly felt more Gaiman than it did Marvel whereas Eternals I thought like really fit that sweet spot for me. Favorite indie series would probably there are so many that it's kind of difficult to 
put my finger down on a series because all of a sudden I start including stuff like Black Sad, which is which is a huge favorite for me. But it, I don't know if that if that quite qualifies as a favorite indie series. If you if you're thinking of like American comics, particularly, I've really enjoyed Hickman's East of West. I, I don't know if that's still still going on though. I haven't I haven't kept up with it as much. Perfect. Yeah, I could I could probably I could probably spit out more, but then we'll be here all day. Oh, in, <laughs> indie is actually the hardest. I always find when we chat to creators, you know, it's always the classics of DC. You know, your Dark Knight Returns, your Kingdom Comes, etc. Marvel it tends to be Daredevil runs or you know Secret Wars. But when you get to indie, just because of the sheer quality of the last twenty years, it's certainly hard to. Yeah, pin it's down. very. It's also, also with indie stuff, you know, it's kind of like, it's kind of like asking like, what's your favorite TV show of all time? You ask me that two months from now and the answer will have changed. Another two months, the answer will have changed. Yeah. Um, and because there's so much stuff constantly coming out that is of very high quality, you know, I tend to think more in contemporary terms, like favorite horror to come out in recent years, probably Gideon Falls. Like, I can't believe I, I didn't mention Jeff Lemire, when it came to like favorite indie series, is like Jeff's work is probably one of the earliest influences on something like Graffiti's Wall, if you if you think about it. So, yeah, there's just too many. Um, Hellboy, Magnolia, of course. <laughs> and there will always be one that you think of in 20 minutes' time. Why didn't yeah, I say that? Yeah. We'll be getting a call back in over 20 minutes' time. Guys, I forgot to. <laughs> <laughs> you said you could edit it. <laughs> Well, uh, yeah, that's that's us for us for today. You've been exceptionally generous with your time. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me. Genuine, genuinely big, big fans and really excited to see what's coming up in the future as well. Loving Swamp Thing. Looking forward to many deaths of Layla Storm. And uh, yeah, re, re bringing that uh, team from Blue and Green back together for Radio Apocalypse has me very excited. So uh, it's been a genuine pleasure and uh, I'm looking forward to the, the future output. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for your time and uh, and best of luck, Graham, with all your upcoming projects, both professional and personal. Thank you very much. And that's going to do it for us, guys. I hope you enjoyed this. Uh, Blue and Green, these Savage Shores, all of Ram's work is available in store as our single issue series, such as Catwoman, Swamp Thing. And we had mentioned the upcoming projects, such as Many Deaths of Layla Star, released 21st of April, and Radio Apocalypse is available for pre-order also.